pray for us. Lord, do ask now that you would help us to set our minds on things above, not just in this moment of preaching, but uh, ever after in all our, our daily lives and all our endeavors. Help us to lay up treasure in heaven, to be concerned with our heavenly inheritance, to desire most of all your son, to know you, to love you, to seek the joys of fellowship with you. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So we've been preaching through Ecclesiastes. That's quite a book. Shocking to many people for whatever reason. They often don't expect to hear the things you hear in Ecclesiastes coming out of the Bible. Actually, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I filled in for Ken at Wayside, and I thought, oh, this is uh, good. I'll, I'll share a little bit of... Uh, I'll, I'll give the Cliff Notes version of Paul's Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 at Wayside. It's a little bit more of a, a verbal group. Uh, wasn't quite heckling, but uh, got a number of comments while, while you're, 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 you're preaching there. Two of my favorites were, wow, you are just a bucket of sunshine, aren't you? And secondly, one guy said, is there any point to life at all? Why did I even come to Bible study today? Right? People are shocked by what they hear in Ecclesiastes. Our text for meditation tonight is a great complement for the book. Not just because it was chosen specifically to pair with our, our sermon text this morning. It was. You'll hear the verbal links immediately. But also, our meditation tonight will help us understand why we need books like Ecclesiastes in the first place. So I do invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke. This is where our uh, verse for meditation comes. We'll be looking at chapter 12. Verse, uh, verse 20 in particular, but go ahead and flip over there. Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 20 for tonight, but we'll, we'll turn to the whole little paragraph there. We heard it in our New Testament reading this morning, but I'll read it again for us now. Luke 12, 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? For many people, this is a very stunning text. It's stunning because it is so sharp. God calls someone a fool. That exclamation mark in your English Bible is on purpose. This isn't gentle ribbing. Like some of you hear me call my children fools. What's up, fools, I say to them. Or even when they're doing something dumb, I'm like, man, you are being a fool, right? This isn't gentle like that. This is biting. It's closer to calling someone an idiot in modern talk. Our verse for meditation tonight comes directly from the mouth of Jesus. And in Jesus' parable, God speaks very sharply to a damned person. Fool, God calls him. Idiot, fool. This night your soul is required of you. So not only a fool, but a dead fool. Dead fool. And then God says regarding this man's life work and possessions. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Which as we consider from Ecclesiastes this morning, ends up rhetorically being a biting way to say, you have wasted your life. All that stuff you worked for, you don't even know who's going to get it, whether they will steward it well or not. It's not yours anymore. God says to a dead man, fool, you have wasted your life. God says that, according to Jesus. We need to reckon with the fact that there is a type of person that God, the all-wise, all-good, perfectly just creator, mocks as a fool. Rather than wincing at the discomfort that may cause, our time would be better spent asking and answering the question, who is it that God is calling a fool? What type of person? Who is the person who has wasted their life? Would God call me a fool 
Am I wasting my life? The parable is addressed to us as a warning. It may not apply to us, or it may. And it is recorded in Scripture to make us pause and think about that question. The way we're going to do it tonight is by considering the specifics of who's being addressed in the text. Right? We're going to, there's actually two. There are two textual addressees, two related but different parties to whom the shark rebuke, fool, is directed towards. And by considering each in turn, uh, we will uh, be able to search our own hearts uh, to see whether or not God would address us this way. We'll get a fuller picture of who this damned fool is. By considering the first addressee, that will help us identify what type of person is the fool in question. And by considering the second addressee, we'll get a diagnostic question that we can use to help us assess ourselves and see if we are that type of person. So let's look at this first addressee. Who is this fool? Right away, we recognize these words. They come in a parable. If you're staring at the paragraph, this is an illustrative story that Jesus told. And in the world of the parable, God is addressing a particular character. The parable's short, so I'm going to read the whole thing. You keep your eyes on it. Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Who is God calling a fool? The person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In this parable, it's a rich man whose land produced plentifully, so much so that he had to expand operations. So is that, is that the problem? Is it capitalism, expansion of wealth? Is the fool anyone with a, a booming business or a, is being abundant in material success? Now, we don't want to minimize the many warnings against riches in Scripture, but wealth is not inherently sinful. It does come with many unique dangers that Scripture warns about, but that isn't the point here. The point of the parable is not anyone who has a productive and growing business is laying up treasure for themselves. They may be. The key to understanding why God calls this particularly abundantly wealthy man a fool comes not in his circumstance, but in how he responds to his circumstances. The plan to build bigger storehouses to deal with his crop wasn't wrong in and of itself. The fool's heart is revealed in how he speaks to his soul. In fact, twice in short succession, that word soul is repeated. I will say to my soul, soul, relax, eat, drink, be merry. And take note of that first word when he addresses his soul. It's the head word for a reason. Relax, rest, sit down, be done, be finished from your work, be satisfied. To lay up treasure for yourself is to be satisfied in earthly things, not God. To lay up treasure for yourself is to be satisfied with things that aren't satisfying. I'll say that again. To lay up treasure for yourself is to be satisfied with things that aren't satisfying. Now, how does that work? How can you be satisfied with things that aren't satisfying, right? If you're satisfied by them, aren't they by definition satisfying? Right? How can the rich man find satisfaction in his wealth when we have just heard for the past three weeks from Ecclesiastes that wealth is vanity, absurdity, and that it's inherently unsatisfying? 
And herein lies the point that underlies the word fool, underlines the word fool in Luke 12:20. It makes the warning so pointed. Riches are indeed inherently unsatisfying. They will never satisfy you. Give any amount of wealth or any particular luxury long enough time and you will find them empty and even bitter. And that time is usually rather short. I mean, sometimes it's literally minutes after obtaining that one thing that you just thought, if I just had this, then my life would be complete. And then you realize, no, this doesn't satisfy me either. Sometimes it's hours, maybe days, rarely weeks, and maybe, I doubt it, but maybe the satisfaction lasts for months. But eventually you will feel the emptiness and eventually the dissatisfaction and the disappointment will set in. And here is where the pointed critique of the parable comes in. Here is why you need Ecclesiastes. You might not live long enough to experience the dissatisfaction of the thing you put your trust in. It is true that the rich man would not have been satisfied with his new, bigger, fuller barns in a week, but the point is he didn't get that week. He didn't get to learn that lesson experientially. He died before he tasted the bitter disappointment of his riches. And thus the stinging address, fool, fool, you did not learn from the word of God how to relate to your riches, and you weren't given long enough to learn the lesson the hard way. You were a fool to be satisfied in what God has clearly told us in his word is not satisfying. One of the reasons you have the book of Ecclesiastes is because you might not be given the wealth and years to test all things under the sun, and so come to the conclusion that all is vanity. You might only have tomorrow, or half of tomorrow. Ecclesiastes is God speaking to you now, warning you now, instructing you now. Be rich toward God. Only Christ is satisfying. Only Christ is all-satisfying, eternally satisfying. And you were made for eternity. You were made for Jesus. All the little satisfactions of this world aren't evils, but they are meant meant to point you to the one who made you, who is himself all-satisfying. Those little things are only appetizers, but if you make them your meal, you will die hungry. Now let's consider the second addressee, right? We've identified this fool. The fool is someone who seeks satisfaction in anything that isn't Jesus Christ. But then we need to ask, am I the fool? Am I seeking my satisfaction in something other than the all-satisfying person of God? And by considering the second addressee of God's stinging rebuke, we find a helpful diagnostic to examine our own lives. Remember, there is a second addressee in the text. God speaks to a rich man in the parable, but Jesus is telling the parable in response to a question from someone in the crowd. So Jesus is telling this parable in response to someone who was not a rich man with an abundant yield. Right? Rather, we read, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus goes into the parable. So verse 20 is very much a warning to this particular person and anyone like him, this person who asked Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him. This fellow comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus to mediate a dispute over property and possessions after the death of their parents. And what you need to understand is, 
he, is, he, he probably had some claim on that inheritance, if not legally to the leather by rights, right? He, he wouldn't have come to Jesus otherwise. He was probably in the right, or at least he believed that. Kids don't come tattle on their siblings unless they think they're in the right, right? You don't go to the authorities unless you believe you have a better case. This man wasn't coming to Jesus and thinking like, Jesus, come on, help me pervert justice. Help me steal some inheritance. No, he was coming to Jesus, asking Jesus to help him get justice. Help me get what is rightfully mine. But Jesus doesn't ask to hear the details of the case. He doesn't say, tell me what happened. Let's get to the bottom of this. Jesus said, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus asks him a rebuking question. What are you doing, man? Why are you talking to me about this? And you might think, but I thought Jesus was God incarnate, the one scripture calls the judge of all the earth. Jesus is coming back to judge. God has committed all judgment into his hands. Isn't this man just taking that seriously? I have a case of injustice, so I'm bringing it to the ultimate judge to get his help. What's wrong with that? Why does Jesus respond so sharply and then tell a parable with the cry, fool? Again, context is key. The problem isn't caring about the inheritance issue in and of itself. The problem isn't even caring to the point of seeking official intervention and pursuing getting justice. The problem is this man is standing before Jesus. Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching about the kingdom of heaven, calling people to turn back to God, coming to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus revealing the very secrets of the kingdom of God to those who had ears to hear. And Jesus is a minor celebrity at this point. He is surrounded by crowds. It would have taken some luck and effort for this man to have even gotten to the point where he got an audience with Jesus. And he gets it. He gets his audience. He gets a chance to talk directly to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, hey, help me get this inheritance that I'm owed. What? You, you haven't understand a word I said if that's what you want to talk to me about. You want to talk to me about your inheritance? What about the inheritance of heaven that I've been teaching about? What about the rewards of heaven? What about the sickness of the sin in your heart? What about the specter of death that hangs over you? What about the prospect of facing the just wrath of God? You want to talk about some money that you are owed? Jesus said to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How did this guy know? How did Jesus know that this guy struggled with covetousness? Because this guy came to the one casting out demons and he wanted to talk about some money he was owed. Note, too, that God addresses those who are caught up in satisfaction in this world as fools, even when what is commanding their attention is an issue of justice by God's standards. It was so important to this man that he got what was rightfully his in this earthly matter that that's what he chose to bring up to Christ. And Jesus, via the parable, calls him a fool. Make no mistake, if you make your life about this world, even under the banner of fairness, goodness, and justice, you will die unsatisfied. So many of us pursue this world hotly, and we excuse it by telling ourselves we are only seeking what is ours, what is owed us, what is ours by right and fairness. We cover our covetousness under the guise of justice. And it can all be true. It can be true that by rights we should get that thing. We are owed that. My brother ought to split the inheritance with me. It may all be true and still God says, fool. 
Are you seeking your satisfaction in this world? Here's the diagnostic. What type of things do you bring to Jesus? What do you talk to him about? What requests do you lay before his feet? Do you set your mind on things above? Do you seek first the kingdom? Do you pray about the gospel, the ministry, your spiritual growth, the spiritual growth of your family, the spiritual good of your fellow church members? Do you desire to draw close to Jesus? Do you desire to see others draw close to Jesus? If you come to Jesus for Jesus, you will find him supremely, perfectly, wholly satisfying. Or do you just want to talk to him about some earthly inheritance? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us something better than an earthly inheritance. We thank you that in the face of much injustice in this world, that we do not have our treasure laid up here, that our ultimate hope is in heaven, and it is you and your person, that you revealed yourself to us in your Son, that you make yourself known, that you make yourself available to your people. And so I pray that we would not be caught up in covetousness, that we would not live for this world, that we would not be rich for ourselves, that we would not put all our hope into this earthly life, but that instead we would be concerned to know you, to know your son, that the matters of the kingdom would command our attention, that these would be the things that we desire to talk to you about, that we desire to care about, that we discuss with each other, that we raise to you in prayer, that command our, the most of our attention, our time, our energy. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.